Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to episode 122 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, an incredible The Style Council honorary counsellor, Steve Sidelnik, drummer, percussionist, producer, remixer, programmer, a man with an outstanding career CV. We're talking Madonna, The Rolling Stones, The Blow Monkeys, Kylie, Robbie Williams, REM, Stone Foundation, Monks Road Social, and so much more. Another very special guest. Let's get into it. Steve Sidelnik, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Awesome. Finally. <laughs> we got I feel that. like I feel like I've been the elusive one, but I, I kind of haven't. I'm just, you know. You're a busy man. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I have been busy, and I, but it was great when I, I went down to see the exhibition that Nikki Weller put on, and that was awesome. And then pretty much everybody that I've met there was like, oh, yeah, I've done Dan's podcast. I was like, all right, then, come on now. <laughs> God damn it. So you did, uh, you, you, it was perfect. I, I figure it's a bit like Jurassic Park, where you have the, <laughs> the velociraptors doing this kind of pincer approach to, from all different <laughs> angles. It's essentially yeah. that. That's my posse, my crew. Thanks, guys. Yeah. No, no, I think I think it's it's kind of you get and as you get older, it's like you when you see, you know, the more people I meet that were actually so influenced by that era and what we did is pretty kind of immense, you know. It's something not to kind of, you know, brush under the carpet. So Oh yeah. And a really short period of time. If you think about it, we're talking about the Style yeah. Council, obviously. And when you looked at all those that, that memorabilia, it must have brought so many memories yeah. flooding back for oh, you. Yeah, it was amazing. What a great job. I mean all the Style Council stuff, I remember having it at one point, like tickets, all those kind of things and whatever. But the one the thing that impressed me most was the uh was like John Weller's office where Nikki found the exact Walpole. Yes, the picture of the of the, of the gold uh, discs and all that. Yeah, yeah, the, and that was just amazing. You know, that was like wow. I saw it once, and it wasn't until I went and played with the style councils, and then Nikki really showed us around, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. Tell me about your background. So, your family came over from Ukraine. 
Yeah. My parents met in a prisoner of war camp in the Second World War. And then made their, when the camps got dismantled, they made their way to um, Hamburg, got married in Hamburg so they could leave as man and wife and got on a refugee boat to Canada. And unfortunately, my mother was seasick and they threw them out in Hull, which is why I ended up growing up in Bradford. Yeah, so that's what happened. And basically, they just turned up with like loads of trucks getting kind of refugees and getting them to places where they needed people to work. And my dad was a wool comber on a night shift for 25 years. And my mum used to mend overalls by hand. And um, yeah, so they had, they had a pretty hard life, but brought up like three kids. So amazing. Awesome. So, could, so you could have been Canadian. I could have been, I could have been a Canuck and I've probably been like a pro whatever it is, but no, I'm a drummer. I'm not even, I'm a bongo player. I could have been a lumberjack. <laughs> I could have been a, could have been a Mountie, but it's awesome. You know, let me ask you about what's currently happening because have you still got family over there? Connections over yeah, there? Yeah, I've got, you know? got cousins and stuff, but I mean, they're very, we're all very convoluted. So we don't, there's not really a like line of communication. I am actively involved with like quite a lot of fundraising that, for direct aid to the Ukraine. I've got two friends from Hyde who they've just done their 13th trip to Lviv and delivered like medical supplies and food and whatever. And then I've got another friend who does logistics in the Ukraine. Ukraine is helping them get it directly to the points it's needed. I'm actively involved in that. And I've done a lot of like stuff um, that's been on Ukrainian TV with uh, Eugene Hutz from Go Go Bordello. They're a Ukrainian gypsy punk band from New York and they're just amazing. And he's a, he is a Ukrainian refugee that ended up being, you know, living in, in the States. And he's, re- he's a really good actor. He was in a great film called Everything is Illuminated with uh, Elijah Wood and Liv Schreiber wrote it. So he's really good friends with Liv Schreiber as well. So they've all been like we did this, I had to film this kind of thing about like how we met and how much we were supporting the Ukrainian people. And there was also like F. Murray Abraham on it and stuff. It was like all these like A-listers. It's <laughs> me. It's me from Whitstable going, yeah, come on. Let's, let's do it. So I've been doing that and I've been doing, I've been working with a punk band as well from the Ukraine called Cardinal Birds. And that we actually recorded a single right at the beginning when of the invasion in like March. And I did a lot of the programming here and sent it over to them. And they had somebody in Canada work on it, somebody in New York work on it, and then put it together. And all the money's going directly for direct aid to people, you know, who, who are still living in like gymnasiums and everything with one bag, you know, like seven, eight months later. So um, God, yeah, it, it's a big, a big thing because it's, you know, it shouldn't be happening right now. And with all the things that are going on around the world, it's like, wow, that's where, you know, music's important, right? now and it helps a lot of people through a lot of things well look we'll put the details for that in the show notes for the podcast as well so let's talk about some of the paul weller connections the star council so how did you get that gig am i right in thinking it started with a phone call from tracy young your your entry into the weller world came via her i answered that ad in smash hits it was for the dr- a drummer for A Craze, who were another respond act. And um, I think, did I go to the audition? I did go to the audition, but I ended up not getting it. And a really good drummer called Mark Chester, who's awesome, he got it. And it was like one of those things. And I just was like, oh, there you go, you know. And then about a week later, I got a phone call 
And I was living in a place in Earl's Court, like flat share with like three other people. And it was Tracy and she was like, oh, yeah, I'm signed to respond, blah, blah, blah. And, um, uh, and we're auditioning dramas. I'd like you to come along. And I was like, awesome. And I kind of went down and my whole background was, came from a very kind of punk and new wave thing and and like it was like bizarre because my brother played in a band so he played in like quite a lot of prog rock stuff in the 70s so I was really into like Santana you know all that kind of stuff and but essentially I was a punk drummer when I was at school I used to you know I was in a band with like some really good friends and so I used to play quite hard with a jam and influence was that one of your bands was that a band you love I've got got a jam story because I went to see them all mod cons tour and they played Breakfast at George's Hall when the Vapors were supporting. And there was a, a record shop in Bradford called Pearson's Records. And they went up and did a signing. And I know this is like illegal, but I went there and I didn't actually have any of their records. But I just nicked a sleeve from the thing and got <laughs> And it was the, in the city sleeve. So and, and, and Paul, Rick and Bruce all signed it. So I, I had that for years. I don't know. I don't know where it is now, but um, I did have it for years because they were part of that punk and new wave scene. So I, the thing that I really enjoyed about their stuff and like the clash, and it, it, was, it was more like their songs were formed. You know, it didn't matter what, you, you know, yes, it was a style, but also there was like a beginning, middle and end, like the Buzzcocks and like really used to, I mean, I used to practice along to all those records. So because it was part of the whole scene. It, w- it wasn't like I wasn't a mod. And I just liked everything. Like I loved it when Specials and Madness came out after that. And I yeah. loved Joy Division. And I loved all, you know, it was like, it was where I grew up and what was available at that point in time. Why the drums then? And we and we should say I'm looking at you now and the, I've got some congas in the, the back. congas in the background there yeah, as well, which, yeah, is, you which know, is always an instrument of choice too. But why why that? Why that? I think basically my brother was was like doing a lot of rehearsals and stuff and he had a, a band and I was um I'd just go after they'd finished and like you can see it but not many people see it. I've got very childlike small hands. And so I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't make He is right folks. Thanks. It's true, it's true. It's like it's not there's no kind of, you know, connotations to that. It's just that I've got small hands. So I could never really get a guitar chord, like because I couldn't get my fingers around it. So a, a bit of bass, I could I kind of got that, but like drums I just kind of got on a kit and I thought I was like okay I think I can try this and and that's what basically why I started you know and there were and at my school there was a couple of guys that were really good drummers like they went to lessons and they were doing proper kind of gigs and getting paid and stuff but I, I didn't do any of that I just l- literally learned playing along to records to the uh horror of my neighbours. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. Well, yeah, because now you can get like uh, the electric kits with headphones yeah. are more of a common thing, right? But yeah, back then, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Back then, not so. There wasn't even less. It was like, it was totally, yeah, it was one of those things. It was like growing up in the 70s, you know, you could see that most people, I think most people you've spoken to on podcasts, it's, it, at that point in time, unless you were excelled at school and you knew what you were going on for the thing was you became a footballer you tried to get into music and those were the two ways out and I was kind of I thought it was alright at football but I wasn't obviously so uh, I just tried uh I got into playing drums and yeah, and that kind of led to everything else really. It wasn't like I ever had a yearning. It just kind of just happened. And music at that time was so inspiring because every band you heard, it, the sound was so original. You know, and it was literally four blokes or three blokes getting together in a room and playing. 
and you know there wasn't like sound design or whatever it was it was like the sound and the, the identity of the group was made up of the personalities and even if you weren't the best musicians in the world it was the sum of all the parts. Mm. And that's what I've loved about this series and talking to people because so much of it back then was making up as you went along and, you know, fig- people, promoters and managers just trying to figure it out. Whereas now it seems <laughs> so kind of everything's premeditated. There's a plan that you kind of follow and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Certainly at the top oh, end. Yeah. Pick up the story then. So you, so you got the gig with Tracy, right? You become part yeah. of her band. Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. I was part of the soul squad. Awesome. I impressed her because I had some, I had some really cool Adidas trainers that were like, light blue and bright orange or bright yellow or something like that. And it was like, you know, I did, I was really into running and doing all that kind of stuff. So I turned up in all this like bizarre looking gear. I used to get everything from Flip in Covent Garden. I was like into like Levi's and trainers and whatever, and cheap t-shirts or baseball shirts. It was like I had my money. So it was, yeah, that, of course, was yeah. that was the thing that, um, that was the thing that I used to do, you know. Well, so. there's so much crossover between Tracy's band, then the Soul Squad and the Style Council and yeah. you know, the members all playing on different things, certainly in the live arena as well. Yeah. People have talked on this podcast about this whole crew being more like a, it wasn't like going into the studio. It was like going to a youth club ultimately. Was that how yeah, it yeah, felt? It was. Yeah, exactly. It was like, A, we got paid, which I've never really got before not 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 we got paid you know to work all the time which was amazing and b it was when you went to like solid bond it was just it was like none of us really had anything else apart from that so you go in you have a cup of tea with arthur and and, and some toast whatever and then john would come in and all blah 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 whatever you go into the studio you'd either be rehearsing or playing there a lot but it was it was kind of like everybody that came in was was like just mopped in which is yeah yeah it was like a youth club scenario but a little bit older imagine that as a job like (laughs) this is what i'm going into because you were like doing a nine to five there was so much going on at that time it was it wasn't like people took a year out like they do now do you know what i mean like then it was like you started and you just carried on and carried on but and because touring was the way that the whole thing of making money but also keeping everybody employed because i think a lot of a lot of people well they will know but like you know paul like that like they own the pa company and everything so they had like a lot of you know they had a big entity to keep going so touring was the way to keep it going you know they were, so they were like ahead of the curve really you know in a in a very kind of basic way but yeah for sure so first gig with the star council would have been the gold diggers one no right so the questions this is where it all kind of into questions supported them and frank played percussion on that gig and that was like was that on rock goes to college or something or one of those like it was on telly i remember seeing it on telly so i think questions supported them in england and then we supported them in europe Right. So Tracy and Soul Squad. So, and then I eventually played drums with Tracy. And then I, I don't think I had deodorant, but if I had some, I'd use some. And then I'd get changed and go and play with the Style Council. So <laughs> it was like, I was like, and you kind of, I was young and I needed to be occupied. So it suited me down the ground. It wasn't what. It was like an amazing opportunity to do both. Now, the thing is, we should say, I mean, obviously the Style Council has a drummer. I don't know if you've heard of yes. him. Guy called, guy called got, Steve White. I mean, right? I've heard of him. <laughs> I've heard of him. He, he's promising. That's what I've heard. He's promising. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. you, had a, you had a real connection with Steve. Because at that point, he's like, what? When you first met him, what? 16, 17, is he? He was 16 and I was 18 and I was just coming. I was just turning 19 on the first 
Style Counseling Europe tour. So that was like 83. So that was right after the Respond Package tour, which was that, that was in like September or something of 83. I think it was. And then we went straight to supporting the Style Council in Europe, which was like mind blown. But what was more mind blown was like his prodigious talent, even at 16. It was just like, I just never met anybody who was that good. I mean, he's amazing now, but he was amazing then. He's always had that level. You can look at it two ways. It's either, oh my God, I'm going to give up. <laughs> or, or what was amazing was that Steve kind of like helped me out and, and kind of filled in all the blanks that I'd never done and really like helped me develop my technique. And, and so we kind of got, you know, initially it was a bit like, all right, here we go, there's two drummers, whatever. And then we just became mates. But he introduced me to a whole load of music and stuff that I'd never really, you know, I'd heard of, but I hadn't like really listened to and really understood. So it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was awesome. And it, it was just great. I think on the first, that first tour, I, we weren't like, they didn't have percussion. It was just like, you know, so Steve, I just end up watching them afterwards, you know? So it was, it was like an education and I learned a lot on that initial tour. It was great. It's interesting watching Weller live now because for so long it was, you know, him, yeah. Steve White on drums, um, Craddock on guitar, rotating bass quite often, but Damon Minchella, Kamel Hines, Yolanda Charles, etc. But the percussion wasn't, you know, wasn't right at the beginning, percussion was a part of it. Then for a long period of time, it wasn't. And now we're back. Ben Gordelli has been in the band for like the last 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, and percussion's a big thing. We have two drummers on stage again and two drum yeah. kits and all that kind of stuff. We've gone kind of full circle. When did you start getting more of a role doing that kind of stuff with the Style Council? It was predominantly in 1984. It was either... I think we went to Europe and we were supporting and then it was like, okay, now that we got to know each other and we'd just done the first Tracy album in like a week with Brian Robson producing and Paul as well and kind of uh, at Solid Bond. So, and I played a bit of percussion on that because I, you know, I'd all... I'd listened to it and obviously growing up in Bradford it was uh, but I was really into reggae and stuff like that so there were, I was always like into timbales and you know it was like a big it was a big part of that sound so I had that as well so when I played on that record he was like oh you know do you want to come and play on the on the tour and I was like yeah of course so it was awesome because I was I was like, like I said, I was occupied all evening, so it was fantastic. Yeah, I re- I, I, and um, and obviously playing with Steve was like pretty amazing, you know. So yeah. it, I, I didn't, I did, I could play very simply because he had it. I just like, you know, did the odd flourish. Oh, come on. Well, yeah. we can, the, the great thing is, we can watch some of this, the Far East, Far Out video. Yeah, there we there we all are. Oh. Uh, so, so you got to go to Japan and t- wasn't there like a stage invasion or something in Japan? I think it was in Osaka. There was like, you know, it was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think he'd been for, a, I, I don't think he'd been, he hadn't been for a long time. And there was just, obviously at that point, a lot of the songs were quite political and it was all quite, you know, it was, it was it, which was awesome. And it was, but I think the whole thing, it just got to a furore and, and usually a Japanese crowd at that point. I mean, it was pretty much you do a show in Japan, it's at 6.30 in the evening and then you're done by like nine o'clock sit down venues like it was then it's all I think it's changed a lot now it was always quite subdued you know a bit of clapping at the end <laughs> this, this kind of like you pour, I mean whoever it was whipped them up into a bit of a frenzy and they kind of started getting on stage but not there was nothing like violent about it I thought it was awesome it was just a it, big party <laughs> yeah it was like you know it was like yeah, it was a bit like what I used to do when I was at school so, but yeah, it was, but that, that was on that tour and it was like, yeah, it was, 
It was just all, I mean, to go to Japan in 1984 was pretty mind-blowing because you can't, it, it wasn't, it was very difficult to go there, period, as a tourist, three, and to go there and work as well, like, you, you know, the visa process, etc. But they, it was like their borders were very tight. When you saw somebody there, if you even if you go out, it'd either be somebody who was in your entourage or somebody who was there playing with another band. And I think we, when we went there on that tour, I think, I forgot, was it? Because Steve used to be taught by Bill Bruford from King Crimson. They were playing in, in, and they were on Polydor as well. And we went to see the show and like went backstage and met Bill Bruford and Robert Fripp. And wow, that was like mind, I mean, you know, it was mind blowing at, at 19 to be able to kind of do that. Because we didn't know anything, you know, obviously you did, there's no internet, there's not, you just read what you saw, read in the uh, enemy or smash hits or whatever. So this was like a total, totally different thing. And to other people, I mean, Anthony Hart he talks about this kind of levels of hysteria for Paul and the band and you know, how much the Japanese crowds absolutely loved him and to the point that the other day we were looking at and The Cost of Loving which we'll talk about as one of the albums you played on and wasn't a massive hit in this country but in Japan it's their biggest selling album you know they absolutely loved him out there of course I played on it that's why <laughs> it um, the, no, yeah. no 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 it was, yeah, <laughs> it's no. you that's really popular in Japan Wait, I've, got, I, you know, I've, got, I've got a presence there let's say that but no no I haven't um, I think it's more I think it was like what, what, what they identified with as well it was obviously like it's a massive change and jazz is huge in Japan Huge, like like Jaco Pastorius and Miles. That they used to play stadiums out there, right? You know, as opposed to like you know, it was a very, it was a very different, different kind of thing. You know, like Steve, or we'd always go record shopping there because there was things that you just couldn't buy anywhere, and they were only available on Japanese pressings. So it was, it was that, and I think also the style, like literally, like you know, the you know white Levi's, the whole kind of thing. It was like people identified because it didn't cost you know. That was like that was just that was like it was like a very modern modernist esque kind of style and and um, you know I think they just identified with all that and the Japanese were yeah it was it was like always amazing to go over there it was so popular there it was like everywhere we went there were people it was it was kind of mind blowing. We should talk about some of the characters involved in this right. as well. So um, people like John Weller, Kenny Wheeler. Who looked after you from a drums point of view? Was there a drums? Oh, yeah, yeah. Ru- Russell Reader, who, who pretty much he oh, helped. Right. Yeah, was with, who helped Nikki put all the... I think he did a video as well for the, the whole um, uh, exhibition that she just did. So it was like Russell... Basically, and um, they had their own crew. They had like Bob who did the outfront sound, you know, Robbie Glanfield did the monitors and stuff. It was like, you know, it was a very kind of all the people like were there all the time because we were working all the time. And of course, yeah, John Weller, awesome. John and Anne and obviously Nikki. And it was like I saw them pretty much every day up until like night from 1983 till about 1986, like Red Wedge, pretty much. You know, I saw them a lot. It was just lovely, you know, to see like a family and they're all like mucking in, doing stuff and helping a lot of people out. It was, it was brilliant. Did you become part of the cards? No, I was just about to go on. Kenny, no, I couldn't. Between John and Kenny, no. I'm not, I've never had enough money to do that. And I'm not, <laughs> uh, well, I haven't got a poker face at all. Like, 
it's just this. It's like, <laughs> it's like if, if I saw like a really good hand, I'd just like go, I'd yeah, be yeah, like, yeah. yes, I'm going to win this one. And then I wouldn't lose. I'm like rubbish at stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not very good at, you know, concealing my emotions. Now, when we talk live performance, I mean, it doesn't get much yeah. better and bigger than Live Aid in 85. Um, but the thing is as well, you played the other one as well, right? So you played, two, was it 2005 as well? I've done, yeah, I did Live. What was it called? Live Eights, was it? Live Eight, yeah, when I was playing drums with Madonna so I I, uh, I did that and then I also did Live Earth in 2007 with Madonna again and we closed the show then when it, that was the Al Gore climate oh yeah I remember that yeah 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 the awareness well, kind of thing which is which was amazing and it was like there was so I mean it was like you know, Metallica, the Foo Fighters, blah, blah, blah. And then Spinal Tap played. We, I was one of the 15 bass players that was on stage doing Big Bottom. I can say Big Bottom, can't I? It's a, <laughs> you can it's say a song title. It's a song title. <laughs> yeah. So, and there's a, I think I was like the first one on the screen. Yeah, it was awesome. Oh my God, I'm going to have to dig out the footage. Yeah, yeah, it's on. It's, on, it's amazing. It's on YouTube. I mean, the thing is, when we talk about levels of hysteria, and we'll talk about some of the other artists that you've you've worked with um, over the years, but I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than Madonna. What's the difference in that? Because that's proper worldwide fame across the planet. The fact that anybody just knows you by one name, I think it's a bit like Elvis, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, seal. Yeah. Uh, well, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done all that. I've, I've done all that. Any, any one name around there. You have. Yeah. You're right. Moby, Kylie, Robbie. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think the thing with, with that is it's, um, it was a specific time for her because I'd worked on Ray of Light and music as a programmer. And I, obviously we, in, especially with music, we were in, we were in the studio for like two months in Psalm and, she, but she never knew I played drums. And this is an honest story. Um, Spike Stent, he is the biggest mixer of records and producer. He's just awesome. And I've known Spike since like 1985. And basically, he was mixing the record. And she was like, yeah, I'm putting a promo tour together and blah, blah, blah. And um, I'm looking for a drum, a little band. I'm looking for a drummer. I've got a few people. And he was like, oh, you should get Steve Snellnick. And she's like, well, does he play drums? And and uh and he was like, yeah, yeah. So I got the call and it was like, right, we're doing this like five, six weeks around like Europe and America. We were starting off in and, and then we would do, we did like the biggest, the first ever, like it was, it was on MSN network. It was the first ever live stream. Right. From Brixton Academy. It was like, it was, and we were only playing for like 35 minutes anyway. I kind of turned up at rehearsals and we were rehearsing in New York, which sounds like it's that, that again is mind blowing. But I'd been working in America a lot because after I was playing, I got, I did, I got really into technology and I did a lot of programming. So I've been working in New York quite a lot. So, but I went over there and uh, I forgot, I think it was like Ariane, who was like her wardrobe, head of wardrobe and whatever. And she was like, I really like your band. And I was like, Oh, great. It's awesome. And, and, and then I found out that. Apparently, she didn't even know. She thought I was the drummer from the sneaker pimps. <laughs> so I kind of got, I kind of just kept my mouth shut. Anybody, <laughs> anybody that said, oh, are you? Um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, they're good. <laughs> and then I just kind of like kept my mouth shut, kept my nose clean and just like, and made it to the end without, without making any mistakes. Yeah. And that was it. So that was it for like, like I played with her from like 2000 to 2007. Wow. And they were big album. I mean, like Ray Light music. Ray I mean, Light. big, big albums. Well, yeah. That time. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was, and it, uh, to me, I love her because she's, and she's a good drummer. She, she plays drums as well. It's, so you can't get away with anything. 
because you can, she instantly knows. But what, what, that period for me was like, it, it was a great period in music, but also it was like, you know, like not the album, I'm talking about in music in general, but Ray of Light music and then Confessions were like, and, and American American life. I really, that was very difficult, but like groundbreaking album, you know. And again, you know, a lot of it was, you remember the style. She kept the identity through all those changes, which is like amazing, really. Yeah, and also I think that just prior to that, it kind of been written off a little bit, I think, and then it's like bang, back on top. For sure she'd been written off. It was like, yeah, I mean, it's like how she managed, she did reinvent herself and and just completely got this whole thing and got a family and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's awesome. One of the things we should talk about as well is, I mean, I love the fact that there's so many televised live things of the, or videoed uh, live performances from the Style Council as well. Mick Talbot talks about the lineup around the time of Showbiz, which is the Three Nights oh, yeah. at Wembley and the Home and Abroad album, that kind of, that yeah. for him being like almost this definitive band lineup. And what was that like being part of that team then, that, that kind of crew? Because it, it does seem that the honorary council thing, yes, it's in rotation for the records and stuff, but from a live performance point of view, he's really, they've really landed on that lineup that they want with Steve and Helen Turner and DC yeah. Lee and all that kind of thing. And Kamel, you yeah. Know, Kamel was my roommate. So uh, <laughs> I bet uh, there's some stories to tell there. It's got, it's got stories, but they're not all, they're not all uh, like, I mean, basically I would, you know, there's nothing macabre at all, but it was, it was like, we, we met up a couple of weeks ago and, um, and Tracy as well came and it was awesome to see everybody. But yeah, it was, it was, I think, I think what it was, was at that point, it was like, well, obviously the record, like our favourite shop was banging and that was just doing amazing stuff. We've just done Live Aid. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this story, but like me and Steve. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Steve were going, and like, he's, he's written about, we were going to get like a, a burger. And the, at that time, you couldn't fly over Russia. So you had to go through Anchorage to go to Japan. And that's where we were going to do this thing. So we stopped off in Anchorage and we, we were in line to get like a hot dog or a burger or something. Cause it was like a four hour delay. And this woman recognized us from the TV, from Live Aid. From Live Aid. Just done it like a couple of days before. And that, I think that's when you knew like the massiveness of all that. But I think going on to that, it was like right mixture of people. Like, like again, you know, like I, I mean, like personality-wise, age-wise, and it was it was amazing, you know, because we could operate as like a band, like we did Live Aid, and then we could add strings, horns, and it'd be like the record, you know, but it kind of wouldn't matter because it was like a central unit, and I think that's always when it's really that's that's when it's kind of 
you know, that's when you really, it all really works when you get this kind of consistency and you know that you're not overplaying and you're not, you're, you're performing as a unit. How much of that comes from just natural chemistry versus bloody hard work? I think it was awesome because they rehearse, you know, we used to rehearse quite a lot, but also after every gig, the tape, the show, we'd listen to it the next day, going to the next gig and, and like listen and then not critique it, but it kind of, it, you know, it was, it was kind of cool. It was good. So you always kind of were like trying to make it better. And maybe I didn't really have like any kind of saying this uh, um, set list or whatever, but I'm sure it helped people kind of decide whether that would work there or that would work there, or maybe we should do this another song and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, it was really good. And I, do people do that now? I don't know. Maybe they do, but I've, never heard, I I've not heard that. That's not come up on the podcast before. This idea of almost like a football manager reviewing the previous game. For sure, for sure. It was it was really like, especially when we were doing Europe and we were kind of on a bus, so we were travelling from city to city. Um, yeah, for sure, we'd listen to the gigs from the night before. And you'd be like, oh, I hope he didn't make a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Or pull, pull slightly out of tune. He's missed a couple of notes. Who's going to point it out? You know, wow. yeah. <laughs> there wasn't even that much about that. It was just like, it was like, it was almost like sometimes it was how the crowd were. Do you know what I mean? It was awesome. But yeah, I love that. There you go. So let's talk about in the studio as well and recording these albums. And we mentioned the cost of loving. So, um, general election tour as well, complete change of lineup. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk about the cost of loving, the orange album. Off the back of the jam, we've had Cafe Blur. We've had our favorite shot. We've had all these big singles as well and, and remarkable run of great singles. And the cost of loving feels very different. You mentioned like the jazz influences. We're moving into a soul direction. How yeah. much of that was communicated by Paul? How much was he kind of talking about the fact this is going in a different direction or was it just a natural progression? It was just uh, for me it was uh, it was natural like I, I mean he's such an accomplished him and Mick at that point they're accomplished writers and and I think he could do anything but the fact that he always wanted to try new things because he could have just like done a formula and just carried on and carried yeah, on our favorite shop too yeah exactly but he didn't he went and tried something else that was like in his repertoire that's what i really really enjoyed about it was stylistically it changed a little bit it gone a little bit more it was more playing on a different kind of thing i really enjoyed that album i was shocked when i saw the cover i love it it's just <laughs> orange it's very easy to find in record shops it's now, very easy to find. <laughs> and I, yeah and it just makes sense you know i love orange anyway so it's uh it was great but it was it's kind of like even the the fact they did the sleeve like that just shows you you know he was like okay well this it's about the music right that's what i felt about the whole thing it was like yeah it's a progression in a it's a different thing but it's it's great what do you remember about those sessions so you played on heavens above fairy tales and right to go i think i must have done them all in one day or like one like a few hours or whatever because it was always like quick it was like he wanted the vibe and that's i think that's when you get people in that's what people don't understand is when you get somebody into work on a record it's sometimes like it like i said earlier it's not because they're the best players because you're kind of like understanding and what you bring works at that point and you're not necessarily there from day one the formation of the you know no, he's not bringing no, the no, lyrics no. in and you're seeing that but you're brought in at the right no. point when you can add something to the record right yeah 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 i think it's yes that happens with like pretty much a lot of the way a lot of records are made and maybe one person comes in and then does something and it changes the dynamic you had a direction like, like i always say when people when they ask me well, what when you go into work in studios or what, what kind of gives you like the influence and for me it's like it's the song and the lyrics 
it's not necessarily like about the rhythm, but it's like you've got to kind of to help that and you've got to kind of put all the peaks and troughs under that and make it work. And that, that's what all the great musicians do is they do that really well. Yeah. I think it was, um, it was the general Steve Trigg was talking from Stone Foundation, who you, you know well, yeah. um, was talking about the fact that Paul has these brush strokes now when he's making albums, these little flourishes, these little right. bits that he'll just add to an album or add to a song rather that, that just lift it, just taking a slightly different direction, which I found yeah. fascinating. One thing I missed, I think, was the trip to Australia. So you went down under with the Style Council too. Well, I went under. I went under. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, that was just ridiculous because it was so, it was, they were so huge in Australia. I've forgotten how many nights we played in Sydney, but it was a lot. And then, um, um, and we did two massive shows in Melbourne at the entertainment center, the Rod, was it the Rod Labour Arena, whatever it was called then, or is called now. And it was just amazing. But to, I mean, to go to Australia in 1985, it was amazing. Like, but essentially the audience, you know, obviously being quite Anglophile, it was massive. I think they even streamed the Melbourne show like over Australia. Obviously, it's hard to get around there because it's such a huge country. So I think there must be some footage somewhere. Well, I love the fact that, and I don't know if it's Paul or John who didn't like flying very much or both, but the fact yeah. you have to get this massive train trip across. Yeah, the in between, yeah. I loved it. It was awesome. I think it was like the royal carriage as well. I think it was like only, it was only used for like dignitaries to go, you know, or like politicians to go from Melbourne. So it was like a long journey, but it was awesome. And everything was new. So you didn't have a norm. So if you had to get a train from Melbourne to Sydney, it's like, well, I suppose that's what you've got to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then 16 you, hours, no problem. It's fine. Yes, it's about, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is what it is. So yeah, it was totally amazing. And we did get to go to an amazing uh, wildlife sanctuary. And I saw my first like uh, kangaroo and stuff called, I think it's the Heedlesville Sanctuary just in Melbourne. It was amazing. I love that they're going for days because you did. You talked. Yeah. I talked about this youth club. It feels like a very much a family affair. But you would yeah. obviously you'd have all days out together. You go to the cinema, the theatre, yeah, gigs, whatever. Go to cinema. We go out for dinner. We go. Oh, like we go. Um, like when we were in Italy, we go to, like monasteries and stuff like that. And um, and it was like day in those days. Like the promoter was, you know, there was no no anything, no social media, nothing. So you you ended up. You know, the promoter, when you'd done the show, would like take you out for a dinner dinner with everybody and stuff. And that was like amazing, you know, because that meant you were all together. Whereas now, you know, I go away on tour and people just do, 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 you know, they've all got their families, everybody goes off. And, you know, so obviously on that tour, it was quite a big thing because Japan at that point it was a mass, you know, it was very expensive to be there. We actually flew in Japan from maybe it was Tokyo, we got into Osaka. And I think whilst either we were in the air or before that, there was a plane that flew that left Tokyo um, that crashed into the mountain and, like, killed everybody. And that was, like, the second time because we were also, and I can't remember purely, but we were either on, I think we were on the ferry before or one very, very, um, very close to the Zeebrugger disaster. Like we just landed or something and then it happened, I think. Yeah, that was like traveling those days. And then you didn't know about it until no, of course, no. until it yeah. went on the news and you were like, oh, wow, there's been a kind of, yeah. you know. So, yeah, anyway, that, 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 was part, that was part of that. That was definitely on that trip, I just remember, because I think, I think we, you, we, you know, we were allowed to call home because I think the flight number was very similar. Right, I can't bloody hell. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine being back home, terrifying. But. Well, yeah, my, I don't think my parents 
cared. So no, they, <laughs> no, they were like, I'm joking. They were awesome. I imagine that tour bus experience now, like you say, is very different because everybody's got a phone. They've got their own, you know, their own music on their phone. They've got films, videos on their phone or whatever. So probably it's quite, it's not so much of a team, everybody like sitting no. back, listening to the same thing, watching the same thing, that kind of stuff, right? No, no, no. And if you watched a video, it was like you had to kind of like have a referendum. <laughs> I don't want to use that word, but you know, you kind of see, you know, what you're going to watch and stuff like that. Yeah, it was great but still all very basic and yeah almost like that's what made it a little bit more special was you know the fact you didn't when you turned up somewhere you couldn't research it and you just had to you kind of if you take the right bit you know you go right out of a hotel you get one experience if you go left you get another sometimes that's cool i love that reminds me guy barker said he used to take all of his um looney tunes cartoons on the road and stuff i don't know if you and there's a lot of carry-on movies that kind of stuff i mean you know part of our kind we brought fish and chips and carry on into europe mate Come on. <laughs> Fair play. Let's talk about the end of the Style Council because you and Steve kind of go at the same, round about the same time where Steve goes and does the Jazz Renegade stuff and you end up yeah. playing with Steve around that time on that too. But yeah. you go to the US. So you escape the Style Council by going stateside, do you? Yeah. Well, well I wasn't, I escaped, but what, what happened was we were, we were doing Red Wedge, right? We started in like, like just before Christmas in 85 or well, it might have been January in 86, I think it was. And basically, there was, you know, obviously, you know about all that. There was a lot of the Blow Monkeys, Madness. There was a lot of people on that yeah. tour. And then people would come in and out and do guest spots and whatever. But at that point, I think the Blow Monkeys had had their album produced by Peter Wilson. They had a big album with Digging Your Scene on it. And that had quite a lot of percussion. So when they were doing that at the show, I'd play with them at Red Wedge. But when it came to the point, and I kind of knew they were going on tour, Steve White said, you should ask him if they want a percussionist. And I was like, ah. So, uh, but I did. <laughs> so, and they did. So we, and, and I got a whole like different experience because obviously Paul knew Robert and blah, blah, blah. And we, they'd done the album at Slug Bomb, but it was also kind of like, I love them. I still play with, with them when they do shows. If I like, do the odd guest spot, I think me and Mick did one like just in February this year. Mick played Whirly on one of the, ch- and it's awesome. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, it's great. And, and so we, we, so I ended up going on like a huge tour with them and um, starting off in England, then going to America but their single was like huge it was it was like number one in the dance chart so they kept on extending the tour you kind of had an itinerary and then it went on for months and we ended up the first gig we did was at Red Rock supporting Robert Palmer on the Addicted to Love tour wow so like <laughs> oh my god that's the biggest thing right, yeah, yeah. the big 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 thing and then we went straight from that we do a lot of shows in between and then we went straight from that into the Psychedelic First Pretty in Pink tour which was another massive, you know, that album was huge. So we kind of went and did that and we were there for quite a while. I don't, I don't know for how long, but it was, it was, it was a lot of shows. And, and basically there was no other way of, um, like you could phone somebody maybe at home, but it was very expensive. And it was, it came at a really good time for me because during, uh, Red Wedge, yeah, it was, it was like, it was a good time because my, my, my mother died then. And I was like, right, I'm, I'm done. I'm going to go. I've got, this is it. I've got a kind of, you know, my dad was still alive, but my mom, my mom, mom passed away. And, um, 
And so it was a perfect time for me to go away and do that kind of thing, you know. Oh, massively exciting. Really, yeah, it was and really exciting to, to to play with, like, you know, people that are, like, even Tony's not in the band, Tony Kiley's not in the band, he's still, like, a really good mate. And that's what's quite amazing is all the people that we pl- I played with in that, at that period, Stargast and Tracy, blah, 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 we're all still really good friends. Yeah, these four, these bonds that have formed a lifelong bonds, lifelong friendship, aren't exactly, they? And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and a great decision because you go on to play, I mentioned some of the people like you know Robbie Seal Richard Ashcroft Kylie Madonna we mentioned I want to come back to one song which I really really love by REM in a second um but these connections with Dr. Robert and Steve White and people like that have stayed because, you know, you played on the Family Silver album with Matt yeah. Bates and with Steve White, with Damon Manchella. You've played on the Monks Road Socials, uh, the first three albums, the Blow Monkey's latest Journey to You, which is a fucking brilliant album. Yeah, it's got, oh, whoa. <laughs> it's got the T-shirt on. <laughs> no, Matt, I'm always representing. <laughs> <laughs> Robert it's will great. love that. <laughs> no, no, a lot, a lot, a lot. I think they they keep me closed. The Blow Monkeys. It's a it's a terrific LP. And, yes, um, great. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, Robert. If you're listening, come on, man, come on. Um, <laughs> so you all love playing together. There's still that musical yeah. connection as well as this friendship, right? It's not like we're just calling our mates up because we like our mates. You all add something to the music. Clearly, you're all, you've all got talent, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's that it's the thing that you 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 know you develop a kind of understanding like over years and I think that's why you get some bands and they're like obviously it's like everything if it matures and it's allowed to mature together you know you know you're going to call them and go can you come down and do this they're not going to take over anything they're just going to like do what you know what's required and it's just really you know it's great it's good fun but what's the process? So when you get that call, uh, you mentioned the style counsellors earlier. So you played yeah. with them at the exhibition in Brighton, this yeah. one-off thing. But so what's the process? You understand, because like that, that difference between being part of a band full-time and having that chemistry, that, almost that sixth sense like you do with the style council when you're in it, for, and the blow monkeys when you're in it for a long period of time. But when you're just going in and like doing the odd guest spot, what's the preparation process for that type of gig? Well, it, w- it wasn't very much for me, I can tell you, because we, uh, it, but because like I can remember all the songs. I think that's one of the things your ability as a musician to retain knowledge and arrangements. I think that's also another thing, which is why some people work more than others. I don't, I don't think it's because essentially, you know, obviously, some people are like amazing talents, but I think the whole thing of just retaining knowledge is quite a big thing, you know. And some people are just like audio audio files; they can just pick it up and play to anything and I think that when you've obviously when it's been a big part of your life and you just listen to it a couple of times it's like oh you got oh, I remember that and and it is like muscle memory comes back or whatever I suppose but it was it was it was awesome doing that because it was kind of Nikki's thing was next door and you know they were doing those great shows at the church and I went to the opening and I saw like the selector which were awesome I saw I went to see the star counselors a while ago I think at the 100 club and it was they were awesome and they, it was like well Kamel was coming down and he was going to play and Jay came and sang pretty, she did like the whole set I think pretty much she like really in it to win it and, and <laughs> me, no in a, in a great way like yeah, yeah. it was like she, I mean, because like when you do backing vocals, it's like you've got to know where to come in, where to come out. We're like, you know. It was, it's always uh, interesting to me because I saw Steve White at a Stone Foundation gig where he'd been kind of airdropped in at the last minute type thing. And just that is that muscle memory. It's that thing of just, yeah, yeah. and having done it, you know, it's for Lord knows how many hours over the years. It's just, you know, it's, yeah. it's clear, what, clearly what, talented. What, what was good was that we, we were, it was like Kamel, we only came on and did like the encore. So we did like three numbers or two. Yeah. 
Oh. And it was and it was awesome. And I think it was like what was amazing was just that the people that were there were just fantastic. And it was great to see a lot of people. And also it was like they rocked like they were tight the horns everybody they were that's a fantastic operation and uh you know right, let me ask you about two songs um i want to ask you about so one rem the great beyond yes how did that come about how did you get involved with those well, guys well, what it, i can tell you it's really really simple there was a guy called pat mccarthy who mixed ray of light i think he worked on joshua tree that u2 and everything like that he came on uh one of the madonna tours i think the first one and he was he was like helping out with the sound and stuff. So I got I used to hang out with him quite a lot. And then I I, I was in I wasn't living in Los Angeles then, but I was there a lot. And he'd got a, a room. He got he got like a studio. And then him and the guitarist, the guy from Hull. I've forgotten what his name Eric. I've forgotten what his name oh, I don't was. know that. And they had this room, and it was like in now it's like an awesome area, but back then it was like it was like in Koreatown and nobody wanted to go there. So you could get <laughs> a lot of real estate. But essentially he'd been working with REM and he was doing that kind of stuff. And it was like they were doing that album, uh, the uh, Andy Kaufman film. Um, with Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. And basically I just like came in and played on a couple of tracks. And one of them was The Great Beyond. And I've forgotten there was another one as well. But they were both like singles and it was just like amazing. It's but, a terrific but, single that they're pushing the elephant up the stairs and all that. It's a yeah, great, I mean, it, great I mean it's like they were at their height at the peak of like absolute, you know, they were massive at that point. A lot of those things, I'm not one of these people that turns up with like a, a business card with or whatever. You know, I pay, you know, too expensive. No, I'm joking. I'm just not one of those people. So it, everything just happens. And, you know, that also like there's been times when well, it's good and times when it's bad because you don't work all the time. You know, people have this perception, but it's like you have a lot of downtime. Obviously, nowadays when you can have like a social media presence, that becomes a big thing. But yeah, in those days, it was just like work of mouth basically and i guess there's a di- big difference between and this must be exciting as well is like you're not just working with these huge stars like this who are already known like people like tina turner we mentioned the, the rolling stones yeah. but the yeah. start of people's careers must like so there's somebody like david gray and i and i love david gray particularly those early yeah. albums a century yeah. ends and and then he oh, you know, awesome White Ladder and we get into Babylon and he becomes a huge star as well. But that must be really interesting to be part of that from like very early, the beginning, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, David Gray, like the the Essentially Ends was like, basically he financed it. And I I got to work with him because his manager, this guy called Rob Holden at that point, um, he he was uh, somebody that I'd worked with like in the late 80s. And he got me in just to play on this record. And we did, we did some demos up at, I don't even know where it was, somewhere up in um, Halston or whatever. And it was like four songs, which are like massive. And then we got to, um, and then we got to go to a studio and Battersea and record it. But like basically David's wife would come in and cook and we just record all day and blah, 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 blah. And it was like, really, everything was done on the shoestring. And he financed a lot of that stuff himself. So it was quite a... But yeah, again, it was all word word of mouth. And then when it came to doing like um, White Ladder, I'd been producing with this guy called Marius DeFries quite a lot. And me and Marius met in the Blow Monkeys because he was a keyboard player. He got into production and now he does like huge movies and stuff like that. But he was, he got asked to produce one of the, a couple of the tracks on White Ladder. So we did that. And we did Sail Away and 
Oh, what a tune! What a tune! Yeah, imagine, right? But it was like we did it in his like garage in in near Cambridge. You know, it wasn't like a massive production, but it was like again, like I said earlier, it's if you've got a song, you know, really, it's all just about putting the right bits of Lego underneath the song to make it work. And did it feel like it was on the cusp of something that this was going to be a breakthrough album? Which point did that become a reality of like actually this this guy is now huge because that sold that album sold loads. It, it, well, it didn't. Because he released it himself. Oh, yeah, but then it got picked up by a major, didn't it? That's right. Yeah, but they they owned it. So he owned it, which is so there was no record company involvement. They just had distribution. So it was like, again, it was like a model that hadn't existed. And it was kind of the first real, like, I don't mean this in a derogatory, but one of those, like, you go around to somebody's house for dinner and you get a bottle of wine and then you put an album on (laughs) its white ladder, right? Yeah, it was. That's what it was. It was like, it was time stamped in that, you know, that generation and what, you know, CDs being really popular and stuff like that. And it was, I mean, it's, it's kind of everything's got a time and a meaning at that point. Yeah. You're right, because I think the other one at that time was Dido, and I think you played with her as well, didn't you? She's really good at typing. She used to be a secretary. You'd be talking to her about something, and she'd be like composing a letter, just not looking. And you'd be like, you'd be like wow, that's a skill in itself. You know? I saw yeah, her live. I knew, she was fabulous. You were probably playing with her, maybe. No, 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 I didn't play live. You don't play with her live, right? I knew, I knew Rollo back in the day, and, and I did a couple of things with like, like in the studio. Like I did a couple of faithless things and whatever. Rollo was a really good producer and he's an awesome guy. I love these connections, these stories. In terms of Mr. Weller, so post-Star Council, have you had much uh, crossover with Paul? Do you well, connect at all? I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like I haven't seen him for maybe like, I saw him last time in Los Angeles when I was still living there and, and he just played at the Greek theatre. Maybe just had his new kids, I think, just then. I think so. Up until recently, I haven't seen a lot of people because I, I was still living in the state, and when I came back, I, I don't know. I just um, I'd see Steve a lot, and then eventually it was like, you know, it's been really good because Steve's very proactive, and he's gotten like everybody together. And that's I love the ideas of these, of these little dinner parties, lunches, these little reunions yeah. where you all get back together, like Talbot, you know, Steve White, yeah, all that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Kamel and Helen and Dee came to one, and yeah, it's just brilliant. And it's kind of like, yeah, it was good. It's great, and great to see everybody still, you know, just gets on with each other. With Paul, it'll be like, I'll just see him or I'll see him going shopping one day or whatever. It'll just be like, I saw him yesterday. Um, Hey, look, this has been so lovely connecting with you and hearing these stories, man. I've loved chatting with you. Um, I have two final questions for you before you go. So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be The Jam, The Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? Um, uh, Good point. Uh, (laughs) You know what I really liked? I really liked our favourite shop. I love that, but I really I, I like things that kind of meant a lot to me at that time were like, I've got to give you two. So it was like uh, Homebreakers and The Lodgers because they were all quite, it meant a lot to me. And it was like my situation at that point in time, you know, it kind of meant you know, the lyrics and everything. And, and, and of course, one was Mick singing and the other one was Paul. So I really like, I like, I like that as a juxtaposition. Nice. And the Lodgers was the first single that you'd be, yeah. they released like this special extended version. Yeah, we did the this first like, single you had, right? Yeah, it's the first thing I 
really played on a part like I was on the live album but then that was the first like recording that I played on yeah so it's okay so yeah awesome nice okay yeah. final question then so the purpose oh. of this podcast is yeah. to talk to lovely people like yourself who've got these stories these connections with Paul linked in whether it's the music or people are fans or whatever but really the, the truth of it is I created this podcast so that I could interview Paul Weller it was the one big regret right. having given up my radio career 10 years ago he was the one person I should have interviewed but never got the opportunity so if it happened off the back of this podcast what should I ask him uh, where'd you get your hair cut <laughs> that's a good, great question um, and, what, and how did he get it cut during lockdown good point good point because I mean hey were the kids doing it he didn't have like a terrible haircut did he no he, d- well, he, he can't he can't can he? Even, <laughs> it's, it's Paul isn't it it's like he's never gonna he looks he always looks good. So, I think yeah. you were there during the blonde highlight years as well, weren't you? Yeah, he, was, he could rock that as well. I couldn't do it, but he can. He, can, <laughs> he just rocks everything like really well. It's brilliant. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask him that. It's a great. <laughs> hey, look, this has been so lovely, Steve. Thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. You've done a great job, Dan. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> really, really great. We'll have a cocktail next time I see you, all right? That sounds lovely. And give my love to the to all of them when you next have your little Soul Council reunion. Sure. Say hi from me. I will for sure. I will for sure. Hi to everybody and uh, great job. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Steve Sedolnik for joining me on the podcast. What an incredible career and what a lovely fella too. Do check out the show notes for this podcast on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And there's a lovely playlist of music that I've created featuring Steve on there as well. And a bunch of videos for you to check out too, including the Madonna ones at Live 8 and Live Earth and Spinal Tap. And whilst you're there, you can show your support by heading to my store. We've got exclusive merchandise, our first official podcast mug, sweatshirts for the winter as well. Plus, you can also buy a virtual coffee if you fancy it too. On the roll call this week for doing exactly that, Martin Toffee Man Ray says, Is it wrong to hope that you never land the big one so the podcast doesn't end? Yes, mate, that is wrong. (laughs) Grant says, keep up the great work, Dan. Thank you, Grant. Hello, too, to Alex McLaughlin. Says, 121 episodes without a dip in quality. Amazing. Great chat with Lawrence and yet more proof that the Weller family are good people. Bless you, as always, Alex. Hello to Terry Stewart. Says, as a massive Paul Weller fan, these podcasts from the makers and players in Weller's life have been so interesting and informative. Doffing my cap to you, Dan, on a well-executed and original idea. Cheers, Terry. Much appreciated. Hello to Travis Blake. Thanks for your virtual coffee. Jeremy from Sydney. As always, thank you, sir. Jordan Cartmel says, just finished listening to the Jezar episode. Hearing stories from behind the scenes is why this is the best music podcast around. Well, thank you so much, mate. Much appreciated. And thanks to you for your support. Head to my website, grab a virtual coffee for a shout out next week. Don't forget, share this episode on your social media channels. You can get in touch on Twitter at Weller Fan Pod, or on Instagram and Facebook, just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.